I'm Steve Forbes and this is What's Ahead. For my final interview of 2020, it seemed only appropriate that I sit down with someone whose work is decidedly focused on the future. Sebastian Thrun is CEO of flying car company Kitty Hawk, chairman and co-founder of the large-scale online educational organization Udacity, godfather of the autonomous automobile, and most of all, an innovator for the ages. But first, what's ahead? Investors take note, gold will shine again. The price of gold has been lackluster recently after zooming from $1,200 an ounce in 2018 to $2,000 last summer. Since then, gold has been hovering around $1,850, but this respite won't last long. The yellow metal will likely be rising big time next year. The reason all that money the Federal Reserve printed to finance those stimulus bills will be circulating as the economy fully opens up in coming months with the new COVID-19 vaccines. The national debt since the pandemic hit us has gone up $4 trillion. Most of the bonds used to finance this red ink were bought by the Federal Reserve by creating money out of thin air. Here's how that neat trick works. Let's say the Fed calls up a dealer and orders $1 million of U.S. Treasury bonds. The Fed then tells the dealer's bank to credit the dealer's account $1 million. Voila! The Fed has the bonds and the dealer has $1 million that didn't exist before. It's that simple and ominous. The speed with which this huge increase in debt took place exceeds the rapidity of the surge of debt during World War II. Excess money printing by the Federal Reserve during the late 1960s and throughout the 1970s led to the Great Inflation that saw three ever more severe recessions, rapidly rising prices, high unemployment, and horrific interest rates. Since March, the Fed has conjured up more money than it did in the 1970s. When the dollar is weakened like this, gold will go up. The greenback has already been wobbling. How bad will the inflation get? That depends on how quickly and effectively the Fed reacts. The worry is that our central bank won't respond quickly enough and the economy will stagnate even though we will not have fully recovered from the shutdowns. Of course, if the new Biden administration doesn't give in to the left of the Democratic Party for economy-strangling regulations and the Fed pursues a stable dollar policy, then the economy will blossom. But the prospects of that aren't looking good right now. So, gold will be shining, but for the wrong reasons. And now my interview with Sebastian Thrun. My special guest today is Sebastian Thrun. He is one of those rare individuals who will have fundamentally, by the time he finishes his work, and he's still in the midst of it, will have fundamentally changed the way we live. Think Edison, think the Wright brothers, Think Marconi, and you'll appreciate what Sebastian Thrun is achieving. He was born and raised and educated in Germany. In the 1990s, he did work at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, did work at Stanford University as a full professor, today as an adjunct professor, went to Google X, where he did pioneering work, still doing it on autonomous automobiles and other things, including Google Glass, which we'll get to later. Very interesting insights he has on that. He also founded Udacity, which has done groundbreaking work in online education. Uh, one of the things he did was a MOOC course, a pioneering MOOC course, which stands for Massive Open Online Courses. Uh, I think about nine years ago, which attracted literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of uh, students around the world. 
He is also the founder and CEO of Kitty Hawk, which is creating what we civilians call flying cars. And these vehicles may actually uh, come to uh, so-called fruition before even autonomous automobiles. He's also engaged in exciting work in healthcare. Imagine rare forms of skin disease being diagnosed from an app. Well, that is not science fiction. That is a reality, and there's more to come. What is so exciting about Sebastian's work is that the self-driving car, automobiles in the air, so to speak, these devices in healthcare and so many other things are reaching the stage where not too far distant future, they'll be as common as handhelds. The first cell phone costs $3,995, weighed like a brick, size of a shoebox. Today, there are billions around the world. There's supercomputers in our hand. If you'd said 25 years ago, grandma could operate a supercomputer, you would get to very strange looks. Now we think nothing of it. So, Sebastian, thank you for uh, joining us. So let's begin by briefly explaining, because there's still fears surrounding it, artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, seemingly ominous sounding things. A friend of mine once said uh, in terms of these things like artificial intelligence, he said, we don't call airplanes artificial birds. We don't call automobiles artificial horses. So maybe we should get some new terminology. But tell us why these things, explain briefly what they are and why they're like instruments, as you put it, like a shovel. They're for humans to use. Steve, thanks for having me. What is artificial intelligence? It's a scary word. It's like, oh my God, some machine is going to be smarter than me. What it really is, is technology that lets you find patterns in data. So if you show an AI system, say, one million faces, it'll learn how to recognize a face in the image. If you show it one million patches of skin cancer, it'll learn how to recognize skin cancer. And it doesn't replace people. It actually augments people. It makes us people smarter. Who would not want a doctor who is better in finding cancer than today? So it's a technology that really helps us go through large data sets find patterns and leverage that, that intelligence into our daily work. Well, as you say, it makes us superhuman. It makes us superhuman. Uh, machines make us super strong. Google has made us superhuman. We all of a sudden have access to all the information in the world. And what AI will do is to one step further where a pilot can be a better pilot, a lawyer can be a better lawyer, and a doctor can be a better doctor. Well, one of the things you uh, observe is that uh, with these advances, so much of our lives we don't realize is spent doing repetitive things. And uh, this will free us to be more creative. Walk us through that. It's a great concept. When you are a professional, say an accountant, a lawyer, or even a CEO, you spend at least 70-80% of your work time doing the same thing. We work, for example, at a company called Cresta with salespeople. And the general structure of a sales dialogue is very repetitive. And that's where AI comes in. It can actually find the patterns in the way you talk to a customer and do two things for you. One is it can gradually help you do the repetitive stuff more efficient. And it can help you do it better. So if you're new to a job, we used to say it, it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert. But with AI, it might just take one day to become an expert. And uh, in terms of repetition, artificial intelligence and the like, 
can observe things that we don't even realize what we're doing. It can uh, observe us better than we can observe ourselves in terms of uh, what actually makes us effective. Yeah, and for certain professions, that's actually very, very useful. We ran a study a while back at Stanford University specifically on the topic of skin cancer. And we looked into how human dermatologists, physicians, trained people are able to spot skin cancer at an early stage, which, which really can be life-saving. And we found that an AI system that had been trained with roughly 130,000 examples of different types of skin diseases, from rashes to lesions all the way to melanomas, was able to then find skin cancer using an iPhone as accurately as the best-trained human dermatologists. And that is good news because that means every doctor in the world now, every, every nurse practitioner in the world will now be able to find skin cancer as well as the best board-certified human physicians. We have a number of instances now where in a clinical tests this technology has actually saved lives. So we can really point to say, a dermatologist said, ah, probably not cancerous yet. Pulled out the iPhone, the iPhone says, oh, it's probably cancer. Sent out to biopsy and found it actually was cancerous. And this is early stage technology. But if you look at the field of medicine, there's so many exciting results now where AI makes a big difference. We have results from Google where AI can find Alzheimer in brain scans much earlier. Very recently, DeepMind protein folding, technology that might lead to new vaccines within weeks as opposed to years for something like COVID. It's an amazing progress being made in health using AI to really find patterns and accelerate the research. In that sense, it creates more skilled labor. Yes, it does. And it always has. We've always built technology that made us superhuman. Let's say the car makes us run faster. We can run with our legs. Let's take the phone. It lets us speak to people far away at the speed of light. Even our Zoom session right now, it's completely amazing because we're able to travel together at the speed of light, which is, in the history of humanity, an amazing accomplishment. And AI is no exception. It's going to make us superhuman. It's going to help us be professional and great from the very first day we start on the job. And you make the point that even though they're going to be able to do these extraordinary things, enhancing our ability... Uh, they're not going to uh, be making, in effect, decisions on their own. Relate uh, the story about uh, the refrigerator and the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I believe, firmly believe that the, the decision authority and the moral authority is with people, right? So imagine a hypothetical refrigerator is so smart it can make its own decisions. And you come to the kitchen, your food is spoiled because your refrigerator has fallen in love with your dishwasher and rather wants to flirt with the dishwasher than cooling your, your food. You would hate this as a product. You would hate your refrigerator to make decisions. You want your refrigerator to be the opposite. You want to be completely reliable so you can trust your refrigerator even when you go on vacation. This then uh, gets to uh, transportation. You could make the argument that transportation was the most transformative thing of the uh, late 19th, 20th centuries, but we're just on the cusp of uh, great new things. So let's start with... Uh, Autonomous vehicles, people kind of think, well, that's a nice toy, maybe someday good for grandma when she loses her license. But you make the point that these machines that we can't live without kill 1.2 million people a year on the roads, including 35,000 here in the United States. So talk about first uh, the autonomous automobile. And let's begin with uh, DARPA, which stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And what it did, uh, the government actually did something right. And I think in 2005, instead of uh, telling you how to do something, it said, here's what the outcome we want it to be. And uh, you uh, responded to the challenge, which started the whole uh, revolution in uh, the idea of autonomous automobiles. 
Yeah, so for me, self-driving car has a very strong personal dimension because when I was 18, I lost my best friend in a traffic accident. And it felt just so useless and so meaningless that this aspiring kid made a split-second wrong decision and had to die. And I know many of your listeners probably have similar experiences. Um, back in 2005, uh, the U.S. government, uh, 2003, launched a competition to give a million bucks to a team that could build a, a car that could drive itself through the Mojave Desert. And that million bucks sounded very seductive. Like many of us said, wow, I can get rich overnight. All I have to do is I put a computer into a car and make the car drive itself. The very first iteration of this, about 110 teams competed. And out of 140 miles, the best functioning vehicle made seven miles before it burst in flames. That showed the world is actually a little bit harder than just putting a computer into a car. We at Stanford competed in 2005. Uh, and we built a car using machine learning that would actually end up driving 130 miles itself to the desert. And it became the winner of what's called the DARPA Grand Challenge. So when the Air and Space Museum in Washington reopens, on the second floor, tucked away be behind the Blackboard SF-71 and other planes, is a little car, a blue car called Stanley, that won that, that challenge. Once upon a time, uh, over 130, 140 years ago, some people thought you just put a motor on a carriage and you had an automobile. No, it was immensely more complicated. This thing, too, was immensely more complicated. And one of the processes you learned is that rather than just focusing on hardware, you have to focus on software and engage in relentless testing. Just as Thomas Edison went through uh, 5,000 filaments before he found the right one for the light bulb, it is just relentless finding out what works and doesn't work and what you can learn from it. And that's a, a topic, Steve, where the conversation from before artificial intelligence comes to your rescue because we have almost have self-driving cars in existence. Let's put a person to a car and watch the person drive. If you we don't talk to the person, it looks and feels like a self-driving car. So what we did at Stanford in 2005 is we trained an artificial intelligence to watch people drive. And they could copy, adapt this skill from human drivers and put it into the pattern recognizing machine so the machine itself was replicating the human driving skill. Today, this technology has advanced to a level that if you build an artificial intelligence system watching a human driver, say, for a week or a month, you can build a safe self-driving car using artificial intelligence. This gets to something important about artificial intelligence. It can observe what we're doing and, again, pick up those patterns and things that we don't even think about to uh, make it a reality. Yeah, and we're just at the cusp of the beginning of the revolution. It's going to be as big as the agricultural revolution, as the invention of the steam engine. Just to remind those of you among us that were three or 400 years old, back when you were born in the 1600s, 1700s, or 1800s, your family was very likely a farmer because 90% of us worked in agriculture. Today, it's less than 2%. And the same is going to happen to our jobs today, to repetitive work today. We see it in self-driving cars. Uh, soon we're going to be at a point that we don't need taxi drivers anymore. We see it in piloting aircraft. We see it in, in medical diagnostics. We see it in places like litigation for lawyers, uh, in investment decisions, where machines become very competent and help us free ourselves from highly repetitive work and be more creative. One of the things maybe you could quickly walk us through is that when these big breakthroughs come, we tend to think they're sometimes overnight. And so uh, the idea comes along, you make some progress, people say, oh, it's going to come tomorrow. No, it's often a 20-year process before it comes fully uh, to fruition, where it becomes an everyday thing. Well, quickly walk us through that to give us a reality check on these 
great transformative breakthroughs? Yeah, so self-driving cars had been in the make since the 1980s. There were teams in Germany at Carnegie Mellon who did groundbreaking work. And back in the day, uh, you would have been proud if your car would make half a mile without colliding with a tree or some other car. So it was very, very early. Compute power has increased. Our science has advanced. And now we're at the point where the Waymo team, which I believe is the world's leading self-driving car team, can basically parallel the skill and, and safety of a human driver. And I know this because I ran the team for many years. And when I left the team, we were able to drive at least on specific environments like highways for 300,000 miles before a human safety driver had to take over in an emergency to avoid an accident. 300,000 miles of accident-free driving is the same as roughly 30 years of human driving. I challenge anybody to drive safely without a fender bender for 30 years. That's really hard. It's amazing. So uh, when will these uh, become more ubiquitous, these autonomous automobiles? Yeah, we are now at the point, it's great you ask, Steve, because it's the most asked question, like what is the year, Sebastian? Is it today, is it tomorrow, is it 10 years from now? We are at the point where the technology works. And you can see um, pilot deployments in places like Las Vegas or Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and a few others. We're not at the point yet where the technology is economical and where we have rolled out real businesses. So the next challenge for the industry is going to be to down costs, to get a better technology base, to make it more reliable, and then wave this new technology into the fabric of society, get it accepted with people, get the idea of having a car with a driver pass by your house where your kids are playing, make that acceptable to people. And it's going to take some work. Uh, relate the story of Larry Page and you, I think it was around 2009, he uh, asks you if you can do something. You're the expert, and initially you say no. Steve, I, you're obviously incredibly well prepared, and normally I love it, but no, I hate it because it's a really <laughs> embarrassing personal story. Not at all. Um, it's very instructive for us mortals. <laughs> it's actually true. In 2005, I won the DARPA Grand Challenge. My team won the DARPA Grand Challenge, and I became the world expert on self-driving cars. In 2009, I was approached by Larry Page, uh, the co-founder of Google, he said, look, you've shown to us how to drive in an empty desert. Why don't you build a car that can drive anywhere in the world, anywhere in California, any street? And I was thinking, wow, a self-driving car, a robot in the middle of San Francisco, right next to a schoolyard when the kids are running out of school under the streets, that is just dangerous. So I told Larry, sorry, that cannot be done. It's impossible. Um, he would come back the next day and say, Sebastian, I think about some more. You should build a robot car that can drive anywhere in the world. Larry, I told you yesterday it can't be done. And I, at some point, I, I, I didn't quite want to say it. I said, look, I am the expert. You're not the expert. You're an expert in search engines. I'm an expert in separate car. God damn it, it can't be done. <laughs> Lucky to me, Larry came back a week later and said, hey, Sebastian, now I trust you. Don't get emotional. It can't be done. You're the expert. But I want to explain to my CEO, Eric Schmidt, and my co-founder, Sergey Brin, why it can't be done. Can you please give me the technical reason? And that hit me hard. I went home, literally in agony, while I was so convinced as the word expert, it can't be done, I could not articulate a technical reason. And the reason why I couldn't articulate a technical reason is because people can do it. People use their eyes to do it mostly, and their brains. And we have digital cameras that function just like eyes, and we have computers that function similar to human brains. There was just no technical reason. So I went back to Larry and said, you know what? I can't find a technical reason. I'm convinced it can't be done because I'm the expert, but I can't find a tech. And Larry said, you know what? 
Why don't you give it a try? And that was the birth moment of the Google self-driving car project that's now known as Waymo. Um, and had Larry not been persistent, this project would not exist. And we would probably not be talking about self-driving cars right now. For me, uh, the learning is, it's almost to say, don't trust the experts. And let me, let me qu qualify this. Don't trust the experts when you want to go into the future and do something new. Your experts will be experts of the past as much as I was the expert of the past. And they will be really well-skilled to tell you what's been tried in the past and what didn't work, but there won't be the right people to help you invent the future. And ever since, I've tried to stay away from experts as much as I can and really get new blood, new people, new fresh minds when we invent crazy stuff like flying cars. This then gets to uh, what we'll call uh, flying vehicles. I know there's a technical term, EV tolls or whatever. But uh, this could be even uh, more of a breakthrough than the autonomous automobile. Tell us about the Jetsons and how the, yeah. that, the cartoon uh, of decades ago actually uh, foretold the future. <laughs> 1962 with the Jetsons is so amazing how popular culture kind of pre-guesses the great technology inventions long before they happened over and over again. So the Jetsons had this beautiful flying saucer and, and it really freed them from traffic and gave an amazing capability. Um, fast forward 2020, we now have incredibly good battery technology uh, that allows us to build vehicles with many, many rotors, akin of like a drone-like vehicle big enough to carry a person. And those can now take off vertically, very quietly, fly roughly 100 miles on a single charge and land again. And that's significant because there's a vision here that in the future, traffic will not be on the ground but it'll be like 500 feet in the air. Why is that good? Well, for one, 500 feet in the air, you can go in a straight line. There's no trees in the way or buildings. So you have much more volume where you can navigate. And it could be environmentally more friendly. The best vehicles we built today are roughly twice as good in terms of energy consumption than the best electric cars today. So I see a vision where cities will not have streets anymore, but they have small landing pads and we all use essentially, yeah, the Jetson technology. So uh, the flying vehicle is not uh, wings on our automobile that sprout out. It's more, as you pointed out, like a helicopter. And uh, the amazing thing, the progress you've been making is that one, it's noiseless, like in a good electric vehicle, and uh, in a sense far safer than a helicopter. I think you, uh, I'm gonna get it wrong here, but there's a bolt in a helicopter, I guess they call it the Jesus bolt or something, where if it goes wrong, by golly, you're, you're, you're doomed. But uh, in the vehicles you have now, you have numerous little motors, and so in, far, far safer than the traditional helicopter. Walk us through that, it, it, it's quite an amazing breakthrough. Yes, yeah, thanks for saying this. We are still at the beginning of it, to be honest. We haven't established that it's really safer, but here's the reason why we should think uh, this technology would be better. Helicopters are actually great, and we would use them every day, all of us, if it wasn't for three reasons. Number one, they're really expensive. They're for rich people. Number two, they're insanely noisy. Most cities hate them. And number three, they're very, very unsafe. If you look at the safety record of helicopters, it's about the same as motorcycles. That's really, really bad. Um, the reason why this new technology can beat all these things, first, it's already shown to be quiet. It's electrically driven, so you don't have this noisy combustion engine. Number two, um, the costs of these vehicles are much, much lower. It turns out electromotors are much cheaper than gas turbines. And in terms of safety, these systems are highly redundant. The moment you go electric, it is completely conceivable that you have like 10 different lift fans as opposed to just one big uh, propeller for the helicopter. 
And if you lose one of those, you still have nine left and you're still perfectly safe. And that's what everyone in the industry does now. We, we build these highly redundant, highly distributed systems that can lift you up where you can lose a component or two and still fly around safely. And uh, the implications are profound. Uh, first of all, tell us about the loophole where you can uh, use these things uh, without getting a formal pilot's license. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a little uh, funny aspect of, of American law um, when the FAA established the need for a pilot's license, which generally is a good thing. It exempted vehicles that have a, a total weight of less than 254 pounds. I don't know where this number came from, but they're called ultra lightweights. Uh, and they became very popular in the 80s where people with no pilot training whatsoever got these little airplanes and then typically crashed and died back in the day. So it became popular and unpopular. But there is a loophole where you can actually um, legally fly uh, these vehicles without a pilot's license. What we've shown is at Kitty Hawk is that we can train you in an hour to be a proficient pilot. And why can we do this? Because it turns out the act of flying is actually very simple. It is basically lift up in the air, go forward, and come down. It's actually easier than riding a bicycle. And that's something that's new. I think when, when we think of the dream of flying, like every boy's, every girl's dream, we don't think of flying as standing in line in the TSA and getting mediocre food in a cramped big jet. We're thinking of flying as the freedom of flying, the control, that we can go where we want to go. And that, that future is now within reach. Now, uh, one of the virtues of these flying cars, so to speak, is the time that it saves. The amount of time we spend in traffic, especially if you live in California, but almost anywhere, the time you spend in one of these flying vehicles is a fraction of getting from point A to point B than you would in an automobile. So instead of uh, whether it's 300 hours a year in a car, it'll be 30 or 176, 16, it cuts our commuting time, no matter how long, by 90% or more. It's amazing yeah, yeah. the speeds these things can achieve. It's, it's really interesting. When you, when you go up in the air, uh, we have a prototype we call Heaviside. It's a, you can look at our website. It's, it's a, it looks a bit like a plane, but it can, can land and take off vertically. And it flies at roughly 180 miles per hour on a straight line. So it means you go from uh, Manhattan to JFK in like four minutes. Right, or you cross uh, Los Angeles in 15 minutes. And that's possible because uh, once you're up in the air, you just go on a straight line. In fact, if there's someone else in the air and you fear that there might be a conflict, let them fly a little bit higher and you're completely deconflicted at this moment. So you have this incredibly big volume. And that is going to be a game changer because, I mean, we spent weeks in, of a life cycle, maybe half a year, and stuck in traffic. And, and it's not getting any better. I mean, maybe COVID helped a little bit because people drive a little bit less, but once the pandemic is over, we're going to drive more and more and more and more, and there's not going to be any new roads. So with this new technology, we can turn the entire sky into a, into a highway. If, if we have a highway lane in the sky and say you want to double the capacity, we just recompile the software and add a few vertical layers to this virtual highway in the sky, and all of a sudden we have infinite capacity. Give us uh, the three myths that you've talked about that uh, people bring up about flying in the air. Let's start with myth number one, that it wastes energy. It does the opposite. Uh, to tell us about why that's a myth, that it could be an energy waster. Yeah, so the intuition for anything flying is, wow, it's got to be hard to stay up in the air. That's true. So you, you will, every aircraft spends energy on staying up in the air. That's called lift, technical terms. It also spends energy on like moving forward, bouncing in all the air, air atoms. It's called drag. And typically, a an, an, an modern airliner, 
spends about five to ten percent of energy on staying up, but ninety-five percent of the energy on on moving forward. Uh, and that energy is basically the same as on the ground. In fact, it's slightly better if you're high up in the air. So by by going on a straight line, you can actually cut your distance by fifteen percent. We we drive fifteen percent extra because we have to go zigzag along the way. So in totality, you should be able to fly more energy efficient than you be on the ground. I know this sounds a bit like a physics lecture here. I, I condensed it, but take my word for it. The the best vehicle we built, heavy side, when we actually measure the amount of energy per mile, it comes down to about 120 watt hours per mile, and that's about a third, half or a third of what a Tesla would use for the same distance at twice the speed. And that's that's actually a proof that it's 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 possible. We have proven that it's possible to be more energy efficient in the air than on the ground. Another worry, which uh, you uh, alluded to, is that with all these vehicles flying around, it's going to be unsafe up there. We're going to be crashing into each other. But uh, you believe that there's software where uh, we're not going to have to worry about that. Well, walk us through that. That's actually going to be safer than what we are on the ground. It's actually a great accomplishment of the FAA, the Federal Aviation Authority, uh, to have made the skies safe. And when you enter a jet to fly somewhere, you're being routed by air traffic control. And they use computers to reserve to you, to your jet that you're flying in, uh, at any point in time, a block of airspace that this plane then owns and, and is the only plane in there. And in doing so, it gets a guaranteed spatial separation of aircraft. And that's the reason, one of the many reasons why you don't crash into other aircraft anymore because of that system. That system exists today over the United States, over the entire world. It's typically north of 18,000 feet above ground. That's where the jets all fly. And that same logic can be done over a city. You can hypothetically, in your brain, split up the airspace over a town into little cubes. And then, and people have done this, assign these little pockets of air to individual vehicles that no one else can occupy. And as long as you do this, you're guaranteed not to collide with anybody else. It's amazing. And on the uh, congestion, the, the worry there, the wolf crash into each other, you've uh, made the point, we don't realize how much space there is in space in the clouds. So uh, you take a thousand feet of highway, straight line, you can fit in 64 automobiles. Whereas in the cloud, it's a thousand times a thousand, and uh, that uh, 1,000 feet in effect translates into, give us the number, it is astounding. Steve, you said it very correctly, a thousand foot of a single linear highway, 64 American cars. But if you make a cube, a thousand by a thousand by a thousand is actually 1.7 million cars. Now, of course, they would really sit like on each other. They would never operate cars or flying cars this way, but it just symbolizes how big the space really is. Uh, when people ask, oh, we take all the traffic from the ground to the sky when we have the same traffic jams, no, we will not because we have the third dimension. We can go up, we can go sideways. Uh, that extra space will deconflict all traffic problems we have today on the ground. And uh, that 1.7 million versus uh, 64 cars it is quite illustrative of that. So those three myths go by the boards. Uh, what about practical things like uh, weather? Is software being developed where we won't be able to fly if the wind turbulence is at a certain level. How do we cope with the weather? These are all challenges that we've addressed and basically solved for commercial aviation. Uh, yes, thunderstorms, updrafts, icing, clouds, these are all technical challenges. In the field of eVTO, the field of what you call Steve flying cars, is working through them right now, but they have proven technological solutions. 
Um, perhaps the most severe weather phenomenon that affects us regularly in the United States are thunderstorms. And those are terrible to fly into. They can break your plane apart. And what we've developed over the years is weather radar systems. They can track those thunderstorms very, very accurately. And we actually instruct commercial pilots to fly around them. You might not know this, but you're not going to fly through a thunderstorm. We can use the exact same technology for these e-vehicle cars. In fact, thunderstorms are less violent close to the ground than they'd be up in higher in the atmosphere. Hmm. Then uh, there's the challenge of uh, air traffic control. You mentioned the FAA, but it is still highly inefficient. It's dependent on people. People can get tired. They have to talk to the pilots saying, uh, do this, hold that. If we're going to have all these millions of vehicles in the air, obviously that's got to be done uh, by software, not by uh, people in control towers trying to keep track of where we're going. Yeah, I mean, Steve, those of you really, really old might remember that in telephony, we used to have these switchboards and you want to dial somebody and you talk to a person and then you, you would plug little cables into switchboards. And of course, in the age of cell phones, that, that, that is not the case anymore. We now have, as you mentioned, billions of cell phones. And you can drive with your car or your train from one cell phone tower to another, be handed over automatically without a person in the loop, and you don't even notice it. You don't even know where the cell phone towers are anymore. It's so ubiquitous. That technology, I believe, would easily apply to, to flight. The reason why we haven't done it yet is because we don't have hundreds of thousands or, or millions of these so-called flying cars. We only have a small number of jets. And for the current traffic, the voice-based routing is sufficient, but it's going to fall apart. We have to replace people with computers for routing decisions. And we've done it over and over again. There's no, no magic to it. It's just you have to computerize the communication to planes and take the human voice out of the loop. This gets, though, to uh, regulation. How do we avoid doing to these autonomous automobiles, to these uh, so-called flying cars, what regulation, especially in this country, have done to the drones, really put suffocating regulation and the kind of innovation you had expected has been uh, really slowed down. How do we get around that, that uh, the focus should be on what these things can achieve instead of saying, well, something might go wrong? Yeah, Steve, you're raising a really great question. I've listened a lot to your blog and, and, and your podcast, and I, I really agree with the things you always say. I should say, however, um, there is a, there's a golden nugget in there because our experience has been in this field working now with the FAA almost on a daily basis. COVID has made that possible that we have these Zoom meetings twice a week now that at the core of the interest of the FAA is the same interest that we have. There's two things that I believe the FAA wants to accomplish. One is they want to keep us safe and they have a very strong mandate about it. It's actually important because you wouldn't enjoy it if jets would crash all the time. And secondly, they also want to be innovative. They just have a different skill set and different perspective. We want to make sure our technology is safe. So we benefit uh, from talking to the regulators to get their experience set. They have a hundred years of experience of air, air safety that we don't have. Uh, and at the same time, we've built really great relationships with regulators in, in Washington, D.C., specifically to advance this technology. I think everybody sees it's coming. Everyone in the field knows it's coming and has to come. It should come. It should be first in the United States. We, we will need to find good ways to make sure that the safety of the general public is guaranteed, even as we roll out these innovations. And that's, I think that's the biggest obstacle. It's actually not the regulator. It is make sure you're convinced it's really, really safe. And in terms of uh, moving ahead on that, so you've done something that perhaps uh, innovators may do in the future, and that is you bring in regulators at the beginning so they see 
from the start, instead of having it thrust upon them, they're sort of a part of the development. So they feel almost more ownership rather than uh, something new, adverse. What is this strange thing? Yes. And one of the very rarely talked about uh, accomplishments of the current administration in D.C. has been a massive cut of regulatory body and language, almost religiously, in the White House under Trump. We've experienced that we have a, a phenomenally great relationship. And we have a very open, constructive discussion where the FAA often comes to us and says, look, have we thought about that? And we'll say, oh, not quite yet, but now we do. Uh, for me, we are one country, one society, one set of people. I'm an immigrant. I, I want to live in America because I love this country. And we all have the same goals. We all want forward. We want progress. We want to take care of people. We want technologies. We want to make the world a better place, literally. And, and the FAA is no exception to that. It really isn't. And uh, where, in terms of development, I believe there's a company in China that's involved. Uh, Germany's been involved. I guess it's just really three countries, USA, Germany, and China, that are at the forefront of this. How are they developing? How are we developing? And when will the breakthroughs come, do you think, in terms of public uh, usage? I love that question. It's the, always the hardest question to answer is what exact year is it going to come? Today, we are in the early prototyping phase. We've collectively, between these different countries and maybe 20 or so serious companies, shown that it's technologically feasible. We've built demonstrators that take off vertically, that fly energy efficiently, have a range of up to 100 miles. So, so the technicality of this is proven, but it's a long way from there to a real product. One of the big steps right now involves what's called airworthiness certification. It is getting the vectors involved. In aviation, if you want to fly something legally, you need uh, to get approval from the regulators that say, yeah, we looked at this and it's safe. And that approval process takes between three and five years. Past that approval process, we need to find cities that want to have this as a solution because you need to land somewhere. You can't just land on the roof of a supermarket or in your front yard legally. So we have to find partners in the public space that are willing to come along and try it out and experience this new mode of transportation. When that happens, now, I think we are a safe five, six, seven, eight years out, maybe 10 years. We are where self-driving cars were 10 years ago in the early stages, but that is not very long given that humanity, we people are 300,000 years old. <laughs> uh, you've come up with some uh, insights uh, on leadership, which is ultimately how these things come to pass. And one of your favorite quotes is, we judge ourselves by our intentions, we judge others by actions. And one of the things we have to learn is to put ourselves in the minds of others so we don't have this division, I'm good, therefore what I do is good, and I didn't like what you did, therefore you are not good. Oh my God, I mean, you built the world's leading publication on the inside of how do you put yourself into the mind of your customers? And, and if there's one rule for anybody in the world, no matter what you do, whether you're a janitor or a CEO or a president of a country, if you perfect the art of seeing the world through the eyes of the person you're talking to, you will always win because you will understand what it takes to move people, to move society, to implement a vision, to empower people. And if you just do this relentlessly, you check your ego in the door, great things happen. That's been my rule uh, as much as I can. There's a, actually a beautiful book from 1936 that I recommend everybody, but Dale Carnegie. It's called How to Win Friends and How to Influence People. 
And it's a beautiful read, incredibly well researched. It's been on the New York Times bestsellers for like 80 years. It's amazing. And it has a very simple recipe is think about what the other person wants and what they feel. And then see the world through their eyes. And what you find is, for example, we often, we often call other people incompetent or idiots or lazy bastards. They are not. They are competent. They have good intentions. Every single person I've met in the last years in my workplace had great intentions. Go to your workplace and ask yourself, is there a person you think has bad intentions? And what happens if you assume that person has good intentions? And approach your day saying, this person too has good intentions. It might be a communication problem, but this person has good intentions. You can make your work so much better, your life so much better. It's amazing how that works. So uh, in terms of learning to motivate people and learning uh, what can be done, Steve Jobs was famously asked, did he do marketing surveys? He said, no, because people don't know what they want until I show them. But uh, you make the point, you do have to interact. So you make sure when you show them, they actually uh, like it. And uh, you make the point that these experts can perhaps learn more talking to their grandmother or mother-in-law what irks them rather than uh, thinking, well, we have the problem, let's get the solution for it. So the late Steve Jobs, I mean, what's often overlooked is he actually did run many iterations of the iPhone and other things by people. Uh, that is not the same as a marketing survey. Henry Ford has famously said, if I asked people at my time, they would have wanted faster horses. But once people saw the iPhone, held it in the hand, could play with it and understand that the integration of the compute platform and Google Maps, whatever, uh, into this pocket computer was actually very powerful and very seductive. And those who got the iPhone early know about it because it was a huge face shift from your Motorola Razor, which was just a phone. When you, when, when you go about thinking about how to be a great entrepreneur, a great inventor, do not think about technology first. Technology is just a tool. It's actually a very boring tool. And technology itself never changes society. Like if you invent a better shovel, it's still the people that use the shovel with big gold that actually change the world. Think about problems. Think about things that dissatisfy us. Like why on earth do people die of cancer? Why did it take more than one day to find a vaccine against COVID? It should really just take one day, to be honest. And there will be a time where it will take one day to find a vaccine against something like COVID. I'm absolutely convinced of this. Think, think on that side and ask yourself, what problem would you like to see solved that really needs solving? And then you can work backwards. And very often there are technologies that you can leverage to solve these problems. But there are so many open problems today. I don't even know where to start to think about. I mean, if I were to finish working on transportation and, and artificial intelligence, I would probably go into medical diagnostics. I've just lost a few years ago my sister to, to breast cancer, completely avoidable if you had better diagnostics. I think there's so many opportunities in the world. So uh, was that the motivation for uh, Udacity? How many learners do you say you've had around the world now? Over 12 million now? Tens of millions at this point. Wow. So uh, talk about the impetus for it and how you've evolved it. It uh, once hard courses, now you have all kinds of courses. Udacity is, a, is an interesting personal story because I never intended to start that company. But in around 2011, as you mentioned, Big Seat, I took a, a course online, uh, a Stanford-level, graduate-level course called Introduction to Artificial Intelligence, at a time when AI wasn't quite as hot as today. And on campus, we would typically have like 200 students. But in the online world, in the first week, 160,000 students signed up in the first weeks. That was mind-blowing. So all of a sudden, I was teaching more students in one course that as a STEM professor, I teach in 10 lifetimes. 
And I taught this course to the online world with the same exams and homework assignments as I gave to the students on Stanford's campus. And in the end, I was able to stack rank the best Stanford PhD students with these 160,000 open world students. And the top 412 students were not at Stanford. They were people outside Stanford. And there was the moment when I registered, wow, I am a Stanford professor, um, but I'm, I'm very exclusive and very elitist. I only let the best of the best in, typically kids of rich parents, turns out. And I don't really do what the world needs me to do and get that education to everybody who wants it, to give everybody a fair chance. And when I say everybody, Udacity today is very strong with Fortune 100 companies, but also very strong in the Middle East. We are right now helping the country of Egypt to become the fifth most important freelancing country in the world by teaching tens of thousands of young students how to do software engineering. In Egypt, hitherto, up to this point, if you wanted to become a good software engineer, you had to teach yourself or you had to leave the country. There wasn't great academic resources. Uh, same is true for the Middle East. It's true for Indonesia. It's true for India, for most of China, for Africa, for South America, all these places. If you want to become a top-notch engineer, you probably have to leave the country because there are no top-notch universities. With Udacity, we changed it. We, we are able to really reach people in, in 195 countries and teach them things like deep learning, web design, mobile computing, all these skills that set Silicon Valley apart. And I think it's important. If I, if I ever become president, and, and I'm not eligible because I'm not born in this wonderful country, but if I ever become president, the very first law it passes, I would mandate that education be free for everybody in every life circumstances because it's a basic human right. Education is a basic human right. It's the most important thing we ever invented is education. Well, you've uh, demonstrating a truism of freedom to be able to uh, create free markets, whatever you want to call it, is turning scarcity into abundance. As you say, instead of a handful of students in Stanford, now you can go around the world. It's sort of a, doing an education, what cell phones did for telephony. Countries that needed to catch up didn't have to build telephone poles and put in uh, old switch systems. They could uh, leapfrog it. You uh, can leapfrog the... Uh, inadequacies of their local learning institutions by having them tap into the best in the world at low cost. Yes, and, and the, um, I would love that you're mentioning this because this is one of the least understood things about technology. Technology always has leveled the playing field, has made it easier to access. People these days hate technology. They think that we are elitist here in Silicon Valley who will get rich on the expense of others, but they overlook what technology brings into people's lives. And just to give you some examples, the, the smartphone is one, and there's no better mobile banking in Kenya than in the United States or in China. It's amazing how this has carried like, developing nations into the, into the sphere of the best in the world. Uh, but, but other inventions that you might like, let's go back in time. The car is an invention that, that democratizes mobility. Modern food production has made it that food for most of us is actually abundantly accessible. I think the great thing that technology has done is really kind of reduce the cost. And as a result, things like access to the internet or television, or even like things like refrigeration, uh, things that, or, or running water and flushing toilets. That I, I personally love every day. <laughs> I'm now so democratized that we all have them. So give us technologies a tiny bit of credit. Uh, with Udacity, I hope to democratize education, that everybody gets a chance to learn the best tech skills. And that's a niche, but I think we are succeeding. We are, we are really training people 
and educating people that otherwise would never make it to Stanford. So uh, you also say that our university system is still a crown jewel of the United States. How do you evaluate it today with all the troubles on free speech and things like that? Is this just a passing phase? Is the uh, essence still there that made this system unique? I think the United States is, is a wonderful country and our right to free speech is, is a beautiful thing. It's, it's really old. I mean, the Constitution is really old and it's still the strongest in the world today. Uh, in terms of universities, uh, yeah, I maybe mean, always have to grapple with, can we be objective and open or do we be political? And sometimes it gets dragged one by another. But overall, I think we have the basis in this country to have an open dialogue about anything you want to talk about. I really believe this. There might be little speed bumps where, where certain topics become not okay for a short while, but in the grand scheme of things, we are, we are not controlled. We don't have a Chinese government control over free speech the way it's in other countries. The U.S. university system is actually very good, but it's also very bad at the same time. It's very good because we have some elite institutions like Harvard and Yale who are phenomenal and, and are really breeding ground for the, the best our culture has to offer to the world. But we also have a system that's very archaic. We have a huge university system for profit that steals your money, uh, has very low graduation rates, and leaves people now with more than $1.6 trillion in college debt, which is a, a travesty. Um, a new administration might, might do something about this. That's where we come in as Udacity. We have this vision that technology is going to be the great equalizer. We can serve people for, we can get people a degree equivalent for less than $1,000 and have done this over and over again. And for those who can't pay the $1,000, we have tens of thousands of scholarships by company like, companies like AT&T and Bertelsmann and many others in Google who fund our students. And in doing so, by using technology, what used to be very pristine and very expensive, often costs tens of thousands of dollars like on-campus education, will eventually be replaced by something that's as convenient as Netflix at home. It's amazing. And uh, one of the things you've uh, pointed out that made Silicon Valley unique makes it hard to replicate, say, at a place like Carnegie Mellon, where you started here in this country, is the mix of fine academics, but people who are very smart, have a lot of creative ideas, but are not academics, and sort of mixing them together to produce this uh, area that comes up with all these fantastic innovations. It's not something uh, that anyone invented. It's, it, it evolved. Yeah, Steve, uh, and I, I believe that basic recipe will find examples all around the world and is gradually finding places like, I don't know, Boston and New York and Austin, Texas, but also in Tel Aviv and many other places. My metric for success is basically if I go to my fictitious grandmother and say, here's what I'm doing for the world, do you care about this? And she would say, yeah, that's amazing. That's the only metric that measures. So whether you're an academic or whether you're a CEO or whether you're working in the government, your objective is that at some point, some people will say, because of your work, I am better off, uh, whoever those people are. And in academia, we do this by inventing new things and writing paper about this, but we don't build industries. Uh, so I, I might have the idea, like Google is a good example. PageRank started at, at Stanford, where some two grad students, Sergey Wren and Larry Page, wrote a, a paper with two professors on this idea of PageRank, how to sort web pages better. And had it stayed there as an academic paper, it would have been published at a conference, but we wouldn't have Google. And what these two students did is they said, okay, now let's go out and build a company around this. And luckily to them in Silicon Valley, they found funding to hire people before they had revenue. So they had venture investments from Kleiner and other companies in Sequoia. And, and then they built up this company and put this available to all of us. And, and 15 years, 20 years fast forward, 
Google now has become so woven in the fabric, we can't live without it. It's this arc from the basic invention, the academic invention, all the way to the field of business in the field that makes Silicon Valley special and we need everywhere in the world. It's so sad to see in, in places like Europe where this connection doesn't really exist, that great professors invent great things, but there's no pathway to take this technology into the business world. And there's a huge disconnect. There's a reason why Europe, which is by population bigger than the United States, doesn't have any of the top 10 technology companies. They are either United States or Chinese. Why is that? Because yeah, if you go to the top 10 uh, technology companies between Apple and, and Baidu, four of them are Chinese, six are American. There's none of them in Europe. And why is that? Because Europe has not yet mastered the art of taking a great idea and turning it to a great product. And little Israel uh, has more companies on NASDAQ other than the U.S. than any other country, precisely because they feel the need to uh, be innovative and not just uh, leave it in the lab or in the conference paper. Tell us about uh, Google Glass, which people will say, oh, it didn't work. Tell us what it is and why uh, maybe it's a little early, but uh, Google Glass was a forerunner. Yes, yeah, so I, I, um, if you ask myself, like, what mistakes have you made, I would rank Google Glass high on the top because there was a great aspiration, but it didn't deliver as a product. But in Google X, I got the opportunity to work on what we thought would become the next generation compute platform. And we all observed that the computer went from mainframe, these big rooms full of computers, to your PC and a desktop, to your laptop they could carry all the way to your smartphone in your pocket. And we felt that this mobility really was important, but we all dissatisfied with a smartphone because it's still just in your pocket and people look down like this, you go to a restaurant, everyone looks like this. You wanted to have this pervasive experience where you go in the world and you're really physically there and at the same time you have access to the computer information you might need. For example, you look at something and it would tell you the name of a person. It would tell you what it is, the reviews of a restaurant, but you don't have to take out your phone. Or my favorite feature on Google Glass was if you had a button where you could record the past 10 seconds. At the time, I had a very small child, and I was able to say, oh, that was cute. Record the past 10 seconds. Like, how cool would that be? So we built this thing. We built Google Glass out of nothing. Um, it weighed 42 grams. It weighed nothing. It was a, a, a supercomputer on your nose, um, a multi-core PC with, like, Wi-Fi and speech recognition and cameras and, and, and speakers and, and a battery for a day of, of, of power and a head-tracking unit, IMU, GPS, lots of stuff, Bluetooth. So we had this, this beautiful piece of hardware and started working on it. And then we made a couple of mistakes. Like here's the biggest mistake I made. I didn't get the privacy concerns that came from this device. And in particular, mistake I really regret to the present day, when we named it glass, I just didn't see the connotation to glass hole. And it so quickly became the instrument of glass holes uh, that I realized, oh my God, I made a huge naming mistake. Um, I think we released it a little bit too early. I think the technology wasn't quite there yet. I do still believe that the vision of augmented reality, the ability to have something with you at all times, is a valid vision. I think the optics weren't quite there yet. But I, I hope that when Facebook and others roll out in Microsoft, their latest generations of augmented reality systems, that at some point people will remember Google Glass was at least my personal best attempt to make a dent here. Well, in closing, you've uh, talked about innovation. We live in a very pessimistic time right now. But uh, you believe that in terms of all the inventions, we've achieved about 1% of them. Close us with that observation that we've got a long ways to go. 
So first of all, anybody who's pessimistic, please don't. Please do not be pessimistic. Obviously, times are always uncertain, but we, we just proven to ourselves we have an incredibly great constitutional system in this country. We've made enormous progress. Almost everything that you care about in terms of technology, from your smartphone to your flushing toilet to your light switch in your house, which I'm sure you all appreciate, is not older than 150 years. The airplane, the smartphone, right? general anesthetics for surgery, you know, the hip replacement, things that many of you care about is not older than 150 years. And I say 150 years because I date humanity, uh, people, uh, homo sapiens, about 300,000 years. So if you take 300,000 years and look at 150 years, it's like a nothing. It's like a microsecond. Now, if that's the case, if we invented all this important stuff in the last, almost exclusively, not entirely, the book is a little bit older, but exclusively, almost exclusively in the last 150 years, then what's the next 150 year bring us? Are we going to just stop inventing things? Really? Honestly? I think we are in an accelerating curve of great new inventions, and we're just beginning. One thing it's fair to say is when people think of me as the godfather of the, the self-driving car, I'm actually literally just taking credit of the work of others, of the, the people I was so fortunate to work with. I never programmed my self-driving car. I had a team, super competent team, doing this with me and for me. And one of the beauties of, of living in this world is when you excite people on a vision and, and forget to tell them how hard it is, you can really move the world and invent things that are crazy, interesting, and make them reality. If you listen to this, uh, ask yourself, what would you like to invent? And how could you get a team together to do it? It's amazing what can be done. Sebastian, thank you very much. It was great fun having you uh, with us and a uh, great way to uh, look at the future. Uh, you're creating the future and uh, we're looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it. 